Hi everyone, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. Each week we hear from professionals in the field, plus people using media to address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Growing old, growing up, and letting go. These are some of the themes author Tanya Ward Goodman grapples with in Leaving Tinkertown, a memoir not just about how her father's early onset Alzheimer's changed Tanya's life, but about her father, Ross, a self-taught artist who traveled the country as a show painter for carnivals for over 30 years and also built the 22-room roadside attraction in New Mexico known as the Tinkertown Museum. Tanya joins us today from Los Angeles to talk about her book, her colorful family, and her father, Ross, who remained a creative force even as Alzheimer's tore through his mind. Tanya Ward-Goodman, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, not many people can say they were conceived in a pickup camper on the New Mexico State Fairgrounds <laughs> when their parents were on the road with a carnival. This could take a while to answer, but if you can, give us a thumbnail sketch of your childhood and the small mountain community where you grew up in the Sandia Mountains. Yeah, I was conceived on the New Mexico State Fairgrounds. My parents were on the road with the carnival, and then when they realized that my mom was pregnant, they decided to settle in Albuquerque because they always liked it. They were both from South Dakota, and I think they were just fascinated by the desert and by the sort of artistic community of New Mexico. And my dad just had this kind of love of the wide open spaces, and they were really interested in Native American culture and also the Old West. And so we settled. Fortunately for me, they bought a little house right at the base of the Sandia Mountains. Mm -hmm. And I grew up always in the same house. And um, it was a really interesting and wild community filled with artists. Almost everyone we knew was a potter or a weaver or, you know, my father was making paintings and also continued to work for the carnival. So he would go on the road and paint. He painted merry-go-round horses and the big sideshows and all the rides before, like now when you go to the carnival, it's all decals. And, right. and But they used to be all hand-painted and my dad would go out and paint them and just kind of travel around to these little fairgrounds all across the country and and paint everything by hand. And it was kind of remarkable. As my brother and I grew older, he took us with him a lot. And we wound up, I think he paid me a dime a foot to paint Uh the the horses. We should make (laughs) clear that um, you're talking about horse hoof foots here. Yes, (laughs) merry-go-round horses. And and then, you know, we'd code out panels for Flying Bob's rides or um, you know, coat out the side of a popcorn wagon and just mm-hmm. roll stuff out and mix paint and kick around on the fairgrounds. Uh, it was a really interesting way to grow up, and it, it gave me a lot of time to kind of read and be in my own head because, you know, my dad was really busy, and, and it was sort of watching him be creative kind of encouraged me to, to be creative myself. You described your dad as a born showman, obviously a really free-thinking, rebellious 
guy. Can you explain the concept of being with it and other carny terms that I'm sure the folks listening to this show are unfamiliar with? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're with it is something that when you're on the carnival or the circus is a way of saying, okay, I'm part of this. So don't don't give me the pitch, which is, you know, don't try to get me to throw a ball into a hoop or win a, a stuffed rabbit, which is plush. Um, mm-hmm. Don't do that. Just, I'm with mm-hmm. it. It's shorthand for like, hey, I'm part of this. I'm part of a bigger thing. And once you're with it, you can kind of walk down, you know, a midway anywhere in the world. My dad always said, just tell them you're with it and they'll stop hassling you mm-hmm. and they'll give you a little bit of respect. And and kind of not see you as a mark. Yeah. Um, And so that was really important, and it felt like for my dad, you know, he grew up in a very small town in Aberdeen, South Dakota. He was an only child, and he was very creative from a very early age. He was always drawing and painting. We have some drawings of his, like, he was five, and he was drawing circuses and um, old west towns and really amazing stuff that was kind of not super understood. His dad was like, why don't you get a job? Like, what's going on here? This, all this drawing is ridiculous. And at a certain point, for him to find a community of like-minded people, he actually ran away with the circus when he was 17. And that kind of, that idea of being with it for him was really about community. And I think I grew up really feeling like it's important to be a part of a community, whether it's the carnival or the circus or a artistic community, or, you know, it's this kind of reaching out and finding your family, even if your family that you're born into isn't, isn't the right one there. Hmm. It's waiting for you somewhere. So your biological mom decided at one point she did not want to be with it. Yeah. And your your folks (laughs) split up. You went to live with your dad and your brother Jason went to live with your mom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. After a time, I think my brother and I lived, yes, I lived with my dad and my brother lived with my mom mostly. And my dad remarried Mm -hmm. and my stepmother Carla still runs Tinkertown Museum. And even after my dad's been gone, she's this amazing sort of leader of Tinkertown and and has really remained true to dad's legacy and has been really responsible for kind of continuing that. So it was, it was remarkable. He was able to kind of, you know, he and my mom, he always said, it's so great that we met, so I have you guys. Like, I'm so grateful that I, I married your mom because I have you kids. But it was really I think he he felt so fortunate to have found Carla, too, just this great love of his life. And really, even at the end with Alzheimer's, he was like, I love all my wives. They're great. <laughs> my dad had a very big heart, and uh, he was very kind. Yeah. I. I like how you describe Carla as, quote, sometimes an almost backbreaking realist. But also, she <laughs> once suggested that you go on Jeopardy to make ends meet. <laughs> yeah. She's amazing that way. She sort of has this ability to kind of, you know, she'll look at things and go, well, that's ridiculous. We can't do that. Or like, she's very good about planning stuff through. But she's also has this wonderful sort of like, you know what, the world will provide. If it's fate, it's going to happen. And we're just like the energy you kind of put out into the world is coming back to you tenfold. Mm -hmm. And I think that is has been very, it's informed the way I live, knowing Hmm. her and and of being with her, she has this really positive outlook. So even in 
crazy situations and sad stuff has happened, you know, there's this kind of like, hey, like we're still putting out this good kind of vibration and it's returning to us. And I think that's a constant for her. And that's, I think, what really drew my dad to her too. And all of us, like she has a nice sense of order and kind of came in and said, whoa, these kids, they don't have social security numbers and has anyone looked at their report card and what's going on? <laughs> and, <laughs> and she kind of, you know, gave us some order, but also this kind of wonderful loop of positive feedback, which was great. Mm-hmm. So you write about how things start to get weird, quote unquote, in December of <laughs> 1996. You're 28 years old at that point, yes, as I understand it. Yes. Tell us about yes. uh, when things started going wrong. Well, I had been living in Los Angeles for about six years, I think, at that time. And, um, you know, I'd seen my parents. I'd go home to visit or they'd come out or I'd talk to them on the phone. But I hadn't really spent a lot of time alone with my dad. And I'd grown up really spending quite a lot of time with him. So I knew him very well. Mm -hmm. And we were very close. And, you know, when you're living in different states and, you know, everyone comes out to visit and you go home and everyone's around – we hadn't had a lot of just he and I time and he decided to come back with me after a Christmas holiday. I'd driven home from Los Angeles to Albuquerque for the holidays and I was coming home and he said, you know, I want to, I want to come out to California. I haven't been out to LA in a while and I want to go to Knott's Berry Farm. He loves. And I said, great, like, yay, let's do it. And my stepmother was like, fantastic. And she hooked up, you know, a, a she was going to get him a plane ticket, and he was like, I don't want to fly, which was weird, but he, he liked to drive mm-hmm. most. So she got him a train ticket, and we got in the car to drive back. And my dad, I mean, here he is. He's been on the road for years. He's driven himself all over the country, and he was having a really tricky time reading the map, even just to get us, you know, he was looking at the map and trying to figure it out. And it's it's a pretty straight shot from Albuquerque to Los Angeles, and it was very... He was just sort of boggled by that, and he'd wanted to see some things along the way, and then he kind of lost interest, which was very unlike him. And just this whole sort of weekend that we were together was sort of like he couldn't make a decision. He would be really hungry, but he wouldn't know what he wanted to eat, and he would be really angry. And there was just a lot of stuff that I just, I had no idea. And I thought, well, is he just getting older, or is our connection? I mean, I think the first thing you think is, wow, are we not connected? I mean, I just hmm. felt like, mm-hmm. who who is this guy? And why is he so angry at me? And maybe all that time we spend as kids, you know, is one thing. And now he's older and I'm older and maybe we don't connect. And it was it was very heartbreaking and strange for me. And so I think that whole weekend, I was kind of constantly trying to, to negotiate our time together and and kind of take him to places that seemed like, hey, do you remember this? Like this, we had a good time here, you know? And, <laughs> uh-huh. and it was not so much trying to like jog his memory, which I think about it now, but it was I was kind of trying to jog his heart in a weird way because mm. I felt like, well, maybe it's our emotional connection that is hmm. a little frayed. Mm-hmm. And I think the one sort of adventure we had during that time he was here that was the best was actually at Disneyland and it was winter and it was rainy and he just decided he wanted to go and I was kind of at my wits end and was like whatever let's do it and we went and we just walked around like he's not a big ride guy but he really likes to look at all the buildings and look at all the signs and it was like you know and Disneyland doesn't change and Uh if you want food there's food everywhere you know there's it's very orderly there's something very contained and presented about it that 
I thought, oh my God, we're having a great day. And in retrospect, I think it's a perfect place for an Alzheimer's patient because absolutely, it's a, it is exactly as you remember it. Like if you're hungry, nothing changes. There's food right there, yeah. nothing changes. You don't have to go. Oh gosh, like there used to be something here, and now it's a parking lot, or that's in a you know an apartment or whatever. It's like mm-hmm. Disneyland. There's even a frost that, joint. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, there's a frost joint. Come kind of candy <laughs> everywhere. You know, it's like all familiar stuff. And so I think it was. Freaky when I put him on the train, I I was so uncertain about what was going to happen and what was going on with him. And I was really, I was very afraid of talking about it. And I kind of voiced it to my friends and my boyfriend and like, sort of like, there's something going on with my dad, but I don't really know what it is. And I was too afraid to talk to my family. And so it took me probably, Oh my gosh, it was probably two months before I actually brought it up with law because with Carla, my stepmother, because usually they would both pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. And one day I got her just by herself and I said, hey, it's something weird going on with dad. And then she just burst into tears because Mm. she said, oh my God, I thought I was going crazy. Like I thought he didn't like me anymore. And I was like, me too. And we just had this moment of, oh my gosh, there is something like we're both seeing it. We got to figure it out. And your dad is yeah. around 57, 58 at this point, eh? Yeah. Right. Yeah, he was. And so it didn't strike us right away as like, you know, it would be Alzheimer's because he was so young. Right. Yeah. So tell us about the diagnosis. It was a, a kind of a long period. It mm-hmm. took us a while to convince him to go to the doctor. I flew back into New Mexico and then we kind of convinced him to go to the doctor. And that first appointment they sort of brought up the possibility of Alzheimer's and, you know, my stepmother and I just burst into tears and my dad was really irritated. He always called us the weeping women. And, <laughs> and then they said, but, you know, it could be a lot of other things. Let's look at all the other things. And so we looked at vitamin B deficiencies and they tested him for lead because he'd been, you know, using hmm. paint, um, paint the, yeah. long before OSHA had taken all the lead out of paint. He mm-hmm. used that and he actually hoarded a lot of those colors because they were so rich and deep and beautiful uh-huh. that he would hang on to those. Uh-huh. And um, so they tested all of those things and looked at him in all these different ways. And it was about, I would say, about six months of testing on and off and figuring things out before we really had a hard diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Hmm. And that was in February of 98. Um, yeah. Right. On I thought Friday it, the 13th. Friday the 13th. Wow. Yeah. I thought it was interesting how you got familiar with Alzheimer's via the 36-hour day, but at one point the book just wasn't cutting it for you, and you called your dad, and you really wanted to hear from him what it was like and how it it feels. I mean, I thought that was terribly courageous of you to ask those questions, but then your dad was such a upfront kind of guy and like a straight shooter. And um, so I guess... In that sense, I guess I'm not surprised that you felt comfortable asking him and you just kind of thought this book isn't cutting it. Uh, Tell us more about that conversation and how your dad responded. Well, I can read you a little section of his response. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I wanted you to read from the book, so maybe this is the right time. And if you're just joining us, this is Tanya Ward Goodman reading from her book, Leaving Tinkertown. This is right after I found out about him and I called my dad and I said, what's it like? What's what like? How does it feel when you forget? It's like I'm setting a table, he says. Everything is all laid out. The plates, the glasses, the napkins. The silverware is in the right place. It looks great. I'm just about finished. 
And then something happens. I'm not even sure what, but it all starts to slide. At first, I try to put things back, but pretty soon, I don't know where they go. And then I don't even know what they are. I'm silent for a moment. The other night, he says, I went to the drawer in the kitchen for a knife. And once I opened the drawer, I just stood there thinking, knife? But I didn't know what to pick up. Are you scared? I ask. Hell yes, he says. That was kind of our conversation. I remember getting off the phone and writing it down because I felt like that was so important for me to carry the description around with me as we went into this disease and whatever our experience of it was going to be. I felt like in that moment he had given me this kind of gift of being able to see through his eyes and say, okay, if I know this about my dad, then then it will inform the way that we move forward, mm. right? Right. I love how you describe your need to write. And you write, I, I can feel the need to write under my skin. Since you're talking about, <laughs> about the writing process, did you take a lot of notes during this time? And, I um, did. So tell us more about your process. Well, I always have written to kind of figure things out mm -hmm. and to kind of process things and to help me remember. I don't have a terrific memory and it helps me a lot if I write things down because as soon as I do, they kind of go into the right place. And so for me, I'm a constant note taker. And if I hear somebody say something that I think is funny or weird or wonderful, I always try to write it down so I can have it. I'm not a person who can come out of a movie and, and recite funny lines back to you. I, they just disappear <laughs> if I don't write them down. So I, I think when I moved home to be with my dad and even before, I started really just kind of writing everything that was happening to us, partially to kind of look at it for myself and also... I don't know, not really with the idea of like, oh, I'm going to write a book, because I really didn't think I was going to do that. But it was just a way of putting it somewhere to kind of store it until I could really process it. Because mm -hmm. I think when you move into caretaking, I, I always kind of say you turn into hands and feet. And you're just running and doing and running and doing. And your head and your heart get kind of shifted out. And so it's like after all the running and all the doing, then I had a chance to sit down and kind of look at all of the pages I'd written. And I, I take a lot of photographs too. And, and I, I spent a lot of time just looking at all of those photos and reading all of the things that I'd written and, and all the emails I'd written to my um, now husband, then boyfriend, like all of that stuff was evidence. And I just, I needed to know because it's kind of like a big situation like that. It's a little bit like a blackout. Like you're just like moving, but, but who even knows what's happening in there? And so I desperately needed to know and I needed to figure out what, what went on. Wow. So let's get back to the actual story. Mm -hmm. You, your, your stepmom, Carla, called you at a certain point and said, hey, you know, have you thought about coming home? Um, mm -hmm. And, and you, you wrote, aside from David, there's not much to keep me in L.A. The doctors had said that your dad had about five years to live at that point. 
And you wrote, it is oddly elating to so suddenly feel a sense of purpose, which I found (laughs) just really great. Myself, having lived in L.A. and having also moved back to my childhood home to take care of Mm -hmm. my mom after my father's death, I really related to this whole sort of stark reality that L.A. is really not real. And as you wrote, here in New Mexico, out of context, screenwriting seems like spending grocery money on lottery tickets. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Talk about that whole process of deciding to leave L.A. and go home, how long you thought it would last, too, and Um, what it was like to arrive. Yeah, I think I thought, I mean, I'd been writing a little bit of television stuff. I'd been working as a writer's assistant Mm -hmm. and... I'd written some freelance TV scripts and and I was working on a screenplay with a partner and his whole story has been lifted out of this book, but he was just a saint. So we were kind of, you know, I had things going on and I'd met agents and it was kind of everybody saying cool stuff to you and it's all going to be great, but it kind of isn't. And so there was this kind of marvelous sense of even in tragedy, I had a role and everybody went oh, you're a saint. You're a saint for moving home. I can't tell you, like, for a while I I called this book, I am not a saint, (laughs) because because it was just like, that was everyone's first response. But it was sort of nice to have, like, an actual role, because, like, when you're living in L.A. and you're trying to be a screenwriter, you're trying to be a writer, you're trying to be whatever, and really you're a writer's assistant, you have to explain what that means, or you're, like, waiting tables, which I've done tons of, or Mm -hmm. all of those things is that kind of, like, the hyphenate that just goes on ad infinitum, you know, forever of the role that you are. And if you're moving home to take care of your parents, you're a saint. Sweet. That is a good, like, concrete role. It's accessible. Yes, that's easily (laughs) understood. Exactly. And so I really, like, that was oddly focusing for me. And I do think that the experience of having to kind of make that decision helped me know who I am like I am a person who will who will drop a lot of stuff to go help somebody out and I think that was really clear to me like okay what's important my family boom all this other stuff whatever and so I moved home really thinking I don't know if I'll ever come back hmm. I mean I sold everything hmm. I gave away everything Wow <laughs> like, you gave up your apartment too kind huh of, yeah, oh my gosh, to a friend of mine who is just now leaving it. It's sort of sad. I huh. went over there the other day. I was like, oh my God, you're still here. But this sort of, you know, just like goodbye, everything. And Oh, uh, so you I didn't expect closed. to go back. Okay. No, okay. not really. And okay. it was funny because I was dating this lovely person who is now my extraordinarily lovely husband. And yet the only constant for me up until that point in my life was my dad. And this intense love I had for him and this great love he had for me. And we had this super duper partnership. And I felt 100% clear on that. And that was the only thing that was really solid for me. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that that would go away, I mean, everything else fell out. Even if it was a new love or a possible future or whatever, all of that was very fuzzy compared to the solid, beautiful thing that was this great affection and love and and kind of relationship I had with my dad. So I, I think everything else was kind of silly. And I started, you know, going to these meetings with screenwriters and doing stuff and it was 
it was kind of just like, what are you talking about? Like, this is ridiculous. Don't you know <laughs> that there are people mm. who I love who are dying? Like, they have five years. And if I have five years left of my life or the life of this person that I love, like, do I want to sit on a couch and take notes from you and rewrite this thing that may not ever happen? And, like, it just seemed silly. So I went home. And in New Mexico, like, everybody's like, yeah, screenwriting, fantastic. And I was continuing to try to write the screenplay with a partner and he would come out and call me and we'd write together and I'd come back here for meetings and you know is this kind of hmm. crazy fantasy world that forth. everybody in New mm-hmm. Mexico was like whatever like what are you doing <laughs> and I was like kind of loyal but you know it was more like if it happened it would be awesome because it would be like winning the lottery I would be able to like afford to pay for care for my dad yeah. or whatever but yeah. it didn't really matter that much and I think ultimately that's why I'm not a screenwriter is because I couldn't make that choice at that time. I couldn't say this meeting at wherever is more important than looking after my dad. And I think it kind of formed me as a writer. I had always been a great reader. I'm a, I love books. I'm a big magazine fan. I like movies, but it wasn't my quest. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not a big mm-hmm. television person. Like, I just sort of happened to, like, slide into it. And I think sometimes we kind of fall into things and they feel like, oh, we should do this because we're in the water and it's moving and let's just see where it goes. And for me, this moving home and my dad's illness kind of lifted me out of that little stream and plunked me down somewhere on an island where I had time to think about, well, what is it? What are you doing? What do you really want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am home, you wrote, and home is a working museum. You moved back into the museum. Is that right? Yeah. So, um... Yeah, it's not... I mean, I don't live in the museum. The house I grew up in is surrounded by the museum. My dad just started building buildings and walls made out of bottles and cement sort of outside the house that I grew up in. So whenever you look through a window, you kind of see another wall or another window or sometimes people walking around outside and mm-hmm. and they kind of move around in this... Like It's like a little maze, and at the very center is my house. (laughs) And Uh and so I lived in the middle of the museum and answered the phone, you know, at all hours, because the phone rings in a museum, even if you're sleeping. So give us an example, sort of your typical day, if there was such a thing. Well, I think when I first moved home, it was just about getting kind of up and running, but the museum opens at nine. So every day we open the museum. My dad and I spend a lot of time. We go out and we undo all the locks. There's a billion locks on Tinkertown Museum and we go through and we open all the doors and there's there's all these different rooms. So you turn on the fortune teller and you put the lights on in the doll room and you turn on the little switch. You have to climb over a little fence and go underneath this thing to turn on the switch for the water wheel. And then you turn on the lights in the old Western town. He's made a wood-carved animated Western town and a miniature circus. You turn on the lights in the circus and turn on the music. Willie Nelson plays all the time singing. And um, <laughs> and we would do that every morning, just kind of walking through. And, and that was really fun with my dad because he remembered the locks. He knew where everything was. Like, I've got this. I built all this. I know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the dogs would be sort of jingling along beside us. And we would sort of spend this morning kind of getting settled. And then people start to arrive. And when the museum first opened, it opened in 1980, 
you know, there would be one or two people every couple days, and we had a gas station bell across the driveway, so it would just ring in the house when somebody drove in, and we'd go out and charge them a dollar and let them walk around in the backyard. Mm -hmm. But now it's quite a big operation, and so during the summertime when I was living at home and, and continuing, I think the Internet has been very kind to Tinkertown and word of mouth, People just come in constantly. So we work in the gift shop. My dad and I would hang around in the shop. And um, our friend Florence from up the road is a very dear friend of my dad's and dear friend of mine. She also a former carny, worked in a floss joint. So my dad used to call her Flossy. <laughs> and she would um, come in and we'd all stand around and make jokes and um, sell tickets to people who would come in and my dad would tell them stories and then we would go and have lunch and wander around. Sometimes dad and I would go on what he called rock runs and we'd drive up the road in my little Honda and fill the trunk with rocks and come back and he'd build more walls. It was kind of great that his job wasn't like a bank job. Like he didn't have to leave the office because he had Alzheimer's. He could just continue to be his oddball self around the house. And most people would go, well, I don't know. I, I don't see anything different. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like, I know. Yeah. Right? Hmm. He's pretty eccentric. But it was handy, I think, to, for him to have all of these different occupations that he still could do. He built a lot of bottle walls. All through the time that I was living at home, he would just kind of mix up a tub of cement and we'd go out and build bottle walls. And it, sometimes when they went over the windows, Law and I would take them down because uh-huh. we didn't want more light to disappear from the house. So we would kind of shift things around. But it was like a great activity for him to kind of go out and build them. And then we'd like take them down and he'd never notice. And then the next day we'd build some more. And that was really good. And he was so happy with his creation. You know, it it, it all seemed very fresh. Mm -hmm. Every day he'd say to somebody, you know, I just made this. And we're like, well, over 20 years he just made that. (laughs) But he'd be like, today I made this thing. And we're like, right on, you know. I mean, it was was fantastic. I think with Alzheimer's patients a lot or with my dad, it's just playing along with the story for us is the best thing to do. Because... Who needs to say, no, you made that in 1962, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's so boring. Just like, yeah, isn't that incredible? I mean, you made it like two hours ago. <laughs> it's like, right, right. Like, no one cares. No one's going to hold you to the truth. It's right. Fine. Well, and it was such a natural fit for your dad. And I like how you write in the book. I suppose you could say that the upside of Alzheimer's is that it makes every day seem like a surprise party. And and that's the truth. I mean, my mom has Alzheimer's, and it's the same thing. I mean, she's just fascinated by everything. Your dad came into this world with a natural curiosity, it sounds like, and was a child in so many ways uh, throughout his life. You could argue that he really didn't change that much until the disease really got its claws into him. Yes, Um, yeah. So talk about some turning points for you. You took a road trip with your dad in October of 1999, which you wrote about as the last road trip with your dad back to L.A. You went to Knott's Berry Farm, and you (laughs) described the changes in him as they seemed to be happening in chunks. Yeah. Um, Well, I think that was right before I moved back to Los Angeles in 2000, and I was sort of shifting some things back here, and... Dad would go along 
Um, you know, we would get used to certain things. He would forget that he'd eaten lunch and he would want to order lunch again, or, you know, he would ask the same question maybe every five minutes and then it would shift and it would be every two minutes. You know, it was just these kind of little things where you would go along for a while and know, okay, like, I can leave him here for a second and I know he's okay to, we can never leave him anywhere again. Mm -hmm. And those things happen very quickly and really catch you off guard. I think that trip was a bit of a learning experience for me, as was everything, because there were some things that he was so clear on, like he really remembered Knott's Berry Farm. He was really pining for the ghost rider, this big wooden roller coaster at Knott's Berry Farm. Like he just talked about it all the time and he was so excited to go there and see it. And that stayed in his head 100% clear. But then he would kind of go, well, where are we and what are we doing out here and why are we here and where's Carla? And like I would kind of show him where he was sleeping in my husband's apartment, you know, where I was staying with my boyfriend at the time. And I would sort of go, well, this is your room and we're staying here. And Carla's on the phone and we can say hello. And then we're going to go back to New Mexico in a couple of days. But that idea of time and distance and place, all of those things become so fluid. Yeah. And so I think that was very hard. And then it was just difficult to sort of, I think on that trip, I had a meeting at I'm trying to think if it was at Universal Studios with my screenwriting partner and a whole bunch of executives, and we were pitching this idea that we had been working on, and I made the meeting appointment thinking, well, my dad will sit outside the room, it's going to be fast, and he'll be okay in the lobby, the receptionist will be there, and I'll kind of explain it, but it was, you know, it was sketchy, my idea was... (laughs) was very loosely Mm -hmm. formed. Mm -hmm. And we went into the meeting and my dad just followed us in. And everybody kind of looked at him like, well, who's this guy? And at that point, you know, you could tell that there was something a little kooky. And he'd had this like, kind of like a slit that he'd cut in the top of his shoe. And it was talking like he would make it talk. And, you know, Mm -hmm. his hair was like kind of whatever. He's wearing like Hawaii shirt. And he just came in and sat in this meeting. And then I thought, okay. And I said, well, this is my dad. And, you know, I was kind of trying to explain things. And he said, oh, you know, that's great. He can stay here, whatever. And so my writing partner and I started to pitch this story. And it was not going great. The pitch was not going great. And suddenly, my dad just started to talk. And he pitched this crazy, wild, amazing, outlandish idea that was sort of a conglomerate of every action movie he's ever seen. (laughs) And everybody just sort of sat in their chairs like, okay. That's a movie. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say, because I know how Hollywood works. (laughs) That's a movie. And it was just like, we just all let it go. And and my dad just talked and the executives, bless them, just let him talk. And I mean, it was pretty clear to all of us that the meeting for us had not gone very well. But it was like, he just did this thing. And then we all said goodbye and shook hands. And he was so happy to meet all these people. And by the time we got out of that building, it was... 200 stories tall. He pitched to a team of 25 top executives. Like, you know, we really did this thing together. It was like our great Hollywood moment. Do you know? It was. um, Oh, my God. That's fantastic. It was an amazing time that we had that day. And that was just going, well, 
this is going to happen. Let's let it go. Because if I had stopped him in the middle, it would have been weird. And as it was, it was this amazing memory that he had for tiny bits. But he came home and called Carla and said, oh, my gosh, you should see the kid, the Hollywood kid. He's pitching these huge people. We did this thing together. And it was this great story and, and a really amazing memory that I have. And when I see my writing partner now, we no longer write together, but I see him for lunch or dinner a couple times a year. And that experience changed him in a way. It became like, oh my gosh, I'm here with your dad. Like, I've known this person, I see this happening. And I feel like my dad had that ability to kind of dip in and sort of shift someone's creative spirit or inspire them in some way. And even as he was going deeper and deeper into Alzheimer's, he was still doing that. And even now, people read my book and say, oh my God, I'm totally in love with your dad. And I've never even met him. And I think, well, good, because that's how it should be. That's what he would like. (laughs) Yeah. And yet you had a fight with him in July 2001 that really was scary for you. I hate to turn the mood here, but because there's there's that flip side too, you know, there's that other like, uh uh-oh. You're constantly strategizing now, but, but you realize that you're in over your head. Seems like a turning point. Can you talk about that? It was a complete turning point. It was about a year after I'd moved home and I'd moved back to Los Angeles and Carla needed to be out of town for about a week and she asked me to come and take care of my dad. And I'd been doing that about once a month anyway, just kind of, you know, going back, hanging out so she could get a break. I would spend a week or five days and we would trade out and she said, look, I I need to go. I think she was looking at retirement homes with her mom. Mm -hmm. And so it was a kind of you know, I need this space. And so I flew home and she said, your dad's great. He's fine. All is well. But immediately I could tell that things were not the same as they'd even been a month before. And he was very confused and very quiet and he just folded in. So I was kind of trying to like perk him up and get him to eat and do stuff. But it wasn't working. And all the things that had worked, you know, watching The Greatest Show on Earth for the five billionth time, mm-hmm. um, or Tombstone, huge hit, those things he didn't really care about. He didn't really care about talking or looking at things or anything at all. And so I was kind of prattling along. I always think of it as nervous chatter, you know, you just don't know what else to do and you're talking and talking. Mm-hmm. And it really seemed to agitate him and... At a certain point, he just started kind of tickling me, which was something that he used to do when I was a kid. He was kind of a tickler, Mm -hmm. but it was scary because it didn't stop. And it was, you know, he's a big guy, and it was just like he was really just tickling me and tickling me and kind of pushing me into a corner and really seemed like he was so enraged and he didn't recognize me. He didn't know who I was. And it just felt like his anger had taken over in this way. And he just, it was kind of like a robot dad. And it was really scary. And so at that point, I was, I had to be very firm and say like, hey, enough, enough of this, you know, and I really pulled myself out. And for the rest of the night, he was very agitated and wound up peeing in the living room. And I was up cleaning it. And and the next day, I talked to my stepmother and I I said, I don't think he should be at home anymore because he didn't even know where he was. You know, he was going, what is all this stuff? He was so confused by the house and he couldn't get out of his clothes. Even wet clothes, it was very 
hard to move him in and out of things and it was hard to get him cleaned up and it was hard to get him to lay down in his bed like he just none of those things were clear to him anymore like what it is that we do when we get into bed or mm-hmm. why we would go into the bathroom or what is a shirt all of those things were lost and i talked to my stepmother the next day and said i don't think he should be here and she just started to cry and she said i know like i've seen it too but i didn't know for sure i needed you to see it and i think that's the hardest thing is the decision to move someone into a alzheimer's care facility or make that move away from home. Mm-hmm. But for my dad, the idea of home had really vanished. It had no meaning at that point. And so I think it was better. It was He was safer. It was a safer move. And for the two of us, Carla and I had been such a team, and I think neither one of us was willing to make that call on our own. You mm-hmm. know, it's a very difficult thing. So... I needed to see it firsthand, and I and I think sometimes you do. I mean, it was a little, it was, I think, the couple of weeks before that that my brother just dropped my dad at the fairgrounds, and he disappeared for 24 hours. And it was because he hadn't seen himself that my dad could disappear like that. Right. And it was after that that he said, oh, my gosh, you know, we got to make sure that we hand him off from one person to the next. Like, it's really important that you make the connection. And I was like, well, yeah, I know that. And But I think sometimes you can't accept something like that. No one wants to really yeah. absorb that about their parent and or their husband to really see that. And you have to kind of come to it on your own. And then as a group, we all could support each other and say, hey, I'm glad you I'm glad you learned this. Or, yeah, we all know this now, and we'll just move ahead. I think by that point, we had stopped being, I don't know, we weren't ever too angry with each other. I think we lucked out in, I don't know. There was a level was, of stress there, but there it wasn't was, out of yeah. control. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't abnormal. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was natural. Yeah, yeah. It, and at this point, we were just like, everyone's just doing what they can do and what they can they can handle. And so that trip, when my dad really got very angry and very threatening, and, and that, was, that was so sad. I think I came back to Los Angeles, and I was just flat out because I'd kind of seen the end, do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That okay. was what kind of sparked us to go check out the nursing home, and my stepmother was able to kind of get him in on a, like, respite. There was a, you know, a little program where you could drop them off for a couple of weeks, I think, and see how see. it went. Mm-hmm. And try it out, That was yeah. the first place that she could kind of, she said, I'm just going to try this out, and it probably won't work, but I just, I think it'll be good for me to have a little break, which was desperately needed, and... I think it'll be good to see if your dad can can do it. And so we all super supported that. And then they said, you know, he's doing really well and and this feels good and there is a space. And so we just stayed with it. And Mm -hmm. by the time my dad moved into manor care, I was pregnant. I think was I pregnant? Almost. But I wasn't home when my stepmother and my brother moved him into the nursing home. It's a locked Alzheimer's unit. Mm -hmm. And it was very peaceful. My grandmother, his mom, was there before, so we knew the people very well. It was really open and kind of comfortable and pleasant. It it didn't feel like, oh, we're locked in somewhere. It just felt like, oh, here's a 
nice, comfortable container for you to move about freely and we don't have to worry about you and you don't have to worry about anything. But my stepmother said when they dropped him, he didn't really know and then he was sort of confused and then he sat on the bed and he looked at them right as they were about to walk out the door and he just gave them both the bird. (laughs) (laughs) He flipped them the bird. And he said, oh, he does know. He He really knows. (laughs) (laughs) He's still here a little bit. Uh-huh. And, and he was younger um, than a lot of the other residents, right? Yeah, so at that was, point, your dad was, what, 60? Um, he was 62 and he died, so okay. yes, he was okay. about 61. And he was. He was at least a decade probably younger than a lot of the residents, but it was impossible to tell the difference. Yeah. And that's what is so wild about Alzheimer's, I think. You know, we would talk to all of the residents there. We became very good friends with the people who lived there because we were there. My stepmother was there every day and my brother was there almost every day and I would go for a week at a time still and spend a week there and Mm -hmm. hang out. And we became, you know, all of these people were doctors and lawyers or people who spoke five languages. You refer to Alzheimer's as the great equalizer, which is such a great phrase. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a good place for my dad. He was a lot calmer and there was a lot less worry I think I mean and maybe this is because I had children so swiftly after being a caretaker for my dad but at a certain point I I really think it's a very similar thing of this kind of narrowing the world providing some structure those things really support us and give us freedom within a kind of containment you know is that that idea of of having some boundary to push against for kids and also a little bit of boundary for security for my dad was what really made him a lot. I think the end was much more peaceful for him and he didn't miss where he'd been because he didn't remember it. It yeah. kind of disappeared. Yeah. 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 But you had to go back and you felt yeah. his absence at Tinkertown acutely. So much, so much. And the first time I went back to Tinkertown after he was living in manor care was really shocking, you know. And I think we were all very nervous. My stepmother was, like, was making steaks, and we had a bottle of wine, and she was talking, talking, talking. And she had really cleared out a little bit of the house so that it was a little calmer because we had kind of let him do whatever. So there were rocks everywhere and there were bottle caps nailed to all the walls and there were drawings and like things, installations of random objects. And she'd Mm -hmm. really gone through and kind of cleared stuff out of their little house and just kind of gave herself some space. And it was amazing to sit in the backyard and have dinner that night with her and see her kind of like bright my dad would have wanted her to be this bright, I think. And for us all to be together and to kind of have shared this huge experience and still be able to laugh about stuff. And I remember her telling all these crazy stories about my dad that night about, you know, when she first met him and he would just like get a bill in the mail for something and just write, you know, no longer at this address and throw it out the window. (laughs) Or, you know, she was like, what? But it was just, she kind of, we all were able to kind of focus on who he really is at that moment as opposed to this, I don't know, we could like lift ourselves out of the intensity and the sadness yeah. of this constant caregiving. Yeah. And I don't think like my dad 
in the final throes of Alzheimer's was not my dad. I think he is still himself, but we missed his words. We missed his brain and his jokes and his crazy stories. You know, we missed that so much that we lost, we lost track of it. You know, mm. when you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, on a high alert. It was nice to kind of settle back in and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, we love that guy. And now Tinkertown is really for my kids, my dad. They're able to really know their grandfather because he left his heart and his brain kind of open for everyone to walk through. Yeah. And they really have a very strong, strong connection to him. And I think that's because of that and because of the stories that we constantly are telling. You wrote, though I have always been a worrier, I'm starting to understand that, like David, your husband, I might be capable, <laughs> too, of dealing with whatever comes. Were you surprised by how you were transformed by this experience in terms of being capable? And maybe you could talk about how you, when you were growing up, I, I, you wrote that you, your parents were smoking weed and partying to the sounds of Jimi Hendrix <laughs> and when you were nine or ten years old, and you prefer Simon and Garfunkel, and your, your dad and brother were always telling you to loosen up. It, yeah. But it really didn't sink in until much later. And I'm talk about how you were transformed by this, if you can. Well, I think, you know what, it's about accepting who you are. I, growing up, I think I was in such a wildly creative, free-to-be-you world, and there was always a little part of me that, you know, I was the kid who was going through the Sears catalog and picking out plaid skirts and blazers, <laughs> and I wanted a string of pearls. I did not want a squash blossom. Something about the way that I'm wired was different than the way I grew up. And for a long time, I felt like, well, that was uncool of me, like I should embrace this wackiness. And, and in a weird way, it also felt like, well, I didn't have to be my own self, like that plaid skirt wearing, pearl wearing person didn't have to exist because... I was the daughter of Tinkertown and everyone knew Tinkertown and knew my dad and and like there was this kind of mystique, you know, all the kooky people would go, oh, Tanya's like a Tinkertown and I was not cool enough to hang out with them, but mm -hmm. <laughs> but there was like a cool factor that I had that yeah. like, oh yeah, I could just say like, oh yeah, I grew up at Tinkertown and people would go, oh, whoa, very cool. And then I didn't have to really be myself. And I think moving home was a kind of decision that was motivated by my family and my love for my family, but it was also really motivated by who I am. And I realized more and more, I, I think there's a difference between being responsible and capable and being uptight. And I think for a long time, I couldn't see that difference. Mm -hmm. And now I'm much more comfortable. Like, I feel like I am a pretty loose person. My husband's like, you're bonkers. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, and I think I am flexible in my thinking and my curiosity. But underneath that, I know for a fact that somebody has to balance the checkbook. I need to put groceries in the refrigerator. Like, I'm able to kind of balance those things out. And I don't feel bad about that anymore. And I think that was mm. sort of something that I mm. really learned going home was you can kind of have both. It's mm -hmm. sort of like that idea that 
to be an artist, you have to starve in a garret and, you know, suffer greatly. And, and really, you can get up and have a nice breakfast and pour yourself a cup of coffee and work for a few hours and pick up the kids and you're still an artist. Interesting. It doesn't have to be all yeah. this drama and thunder and lightning because that's just not how I, I work. And that isn't to say that other people are not, you know, they may need that or that may just be the way their lives are. But I, for me, it was like much more about kind of accepting like, oh, well, this is who I am. And I think that's a constant thing. I think we're always accepting that and then suddenly changing a little and going, oh, now do I, do I still fit that? Am I still in those lines? Or like, and I think as I get older, I got to say, I'm, I think I'm going to really like my 50s. <laughs> because, <laughs> because as I've moved to the end of my 40s, I care less about what people are thinking or what I should be doing or what sort of standard I'm holding myself against. I kind of have a, I have a sense of my own outline and it's, hmm. it's fine. I'm, I'm okay with it. But I think that started really going home and looking at things and inspecting everything I've given I kind of have looked at everything so closely partially because I wrote this book and at a certain point when you write something you hold everything in your hands so many times and turn it over and ponder it and think about the meaning and think about other people's perception of it and look at it from other points of view that for me I can't help come away a little deeper and a little more prone to constant inspection so I think I'm always looking like, well, why can't I decide what I want to wear? Because my mom made all my clothes from the you know, fabric store and we got everything at thrift stores. So there wasn't choice. It was a sort of like, well, we have this fabric or this happens to be at the thrift store. So that's what we're wearing. And so now I think, well, how do I decide what I want? I don't know. But it's because I grew up like that. You yeah. Know? yeah. And then I give myself some freedom. Like you're not indecisive. You just you didn't learn how to do that and here's why well and you know there's a there's a point you yeah there's a point in your book where you talk about you're perpetually in an unfinished state um, yes. you're not finishing a screenplay you know you're, you're drained listening to you now it sounds like you feel that maybe you are still in an unfinished state but you're okay with that and yes. and you, I think we are right yeah you know, you grew up in the shadow of this iconoclast who was unafraid of being who he was. It, mu right. it must be hard to find your place in that environment. It is. Oh, yeah. definitely. And I do feel like I'm unfinished. But I think now there's no judgment in that. That's kind of awesome. Like unfinished uh -huh. means I don't speak Spanish yet. Right on. Right. I'm going to learn. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. right. I haven't been to Budapest. Good. Let's go. Like, I think being unfinished is more open-ended now. There's so much opportunities, so much more to do. And I, I do have a hard time finishing things. Um, <laughs> Truth be Because told. I think I have just a lot of interest. And so I'll start something because it'll feel really fun. And then I said to a writer friend yesterday, I have all these essays that are like little dolls, just almost ready to go, but they're like missing an arm or one has only one eye. And like, they're just kind of like nearly finished, but I'm okay with that. Like, they're just kind of circling around me. And at a certain point, everything kind of happens when it's supposed to, or I'll learn something new. It'll push me to kind of crank out one thing or another. Mm -hmm. um, is, there yeah. an, is there anything that you wish you'd done differently during the time that you wrote about? I don't know. I feel like our experience, despite the loss of my father, 
was about the best experience we could have had. I feel like we came, we came through it as a family, and I think we're tighter as a family now, and we're a very sort of broad and rambling mixed family. My stepmother has a stepmother who have like she has stepsisters and we have numerous multiple marriages and mm-hmm. and everyone just comes together at events now and mm-hmm. it's like there was something that kind of uncorked with my dad's illness that it was like hey we all may have had stuff in the past but here's the deal life is extraordinarily short we're all full of love for at least some of the people here. So let's like let it spill over. Mm-hmm. And and it did and continues to. And I, I think that has been a, an amazing gift. And what I think my dad would have really cherished as a legacy is just, hey, everyone, just hang out and have a party and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> your dad was Jerry Garcia. I mean, I mean, your dad was such a hippie. <laughs> But so right. really, really productive. I mean, let's not incredibly let's be, productive. Let's be honest. Yeah. I think you wrote what well, I did this while you were watching TV. I think he said yeah. right. <laughs> incredibly yeah. productive. He never stopped. I mean, it was really a kind of a constant thing. I I remember him once saying, "Look, if you want to get something done, just put your pencil on the paper and don't stop moving your hand." Incredible. And, and I think That's about really that cool. all the time. Yeah. yeah. What, wow, what, what a great legacy. Well, I want to give you a chance to offer any last thoughts before we close. Is there anything oh else God. that you'd like to say? Oh, I just want to thank you so much for finding me and for being so kind to read my book. And it's been so nice to talk to you. I'm glad to share my story because I feel like there are so many people going through this in so many different ways. And the more stories that we can share, it kind of creates for us that big party. We're all together and we all overlap in some way. And and I think it's important to remember that and to see that, that we're all kind of part of this big narrative. Tanya Ward Goodman, she's the author of Leaving Tinkertown, a memoir that is a work of art into its own. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Tanya's book, plus a link to the Tinkertown Museum, created by Tanya's father, Ross Ward. It's open 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. now through October 31st, so check it out. Tanya, thanks so much for being on the show, and thanks for this wonderful book. Take care. Thanks, Dennis. Bye-bye. So nice to talk to you. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this show, please tell your friends, and if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review rate us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.